classic me, you know, just the thing I don't need to forget, I forget. That being said, brethren, we're now blessed to have our final message today by my good friend Curtis Whiteley entitled Waiting on the Promise. Thank you, Owen. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is, on another beautiful Sabbath day. As was mentioned, the title of this message today is Waiting on the Promise. Waiting on the Promise. Can anyone tell me what day we are in our count? Day 14. That's right. And so, to start off today, I'd like to start off in Acts, the first chapter. We're not going to spend a lot of time in this chapter, but I'd like to kind of uh, start off in this chapter because this was the period of time that the disciples were in in Acts 1. They were waiting on these promises that God had, uh, Jesus had told them about. Let's go to Acts, the first chapter, verse 1. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he threw the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking to the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so Luke, writing this book, his sequel, so to speak, to his gospel that he wrote, is he took careful uh, he, he was very careful in writing about the events that he was investigating in regards to what happened with Jesus. And at the very beginning, before the day of Pentecost, he gives us just this snapshot at the very moment in time that Jesus ascended into heaven. And we read this, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Does anybody feel like maybe you would have asked him that same thing? probably would have. All of these things that Jesus had been going around and preaching and talking about, I could see myself asking that very same thing. But Jesus' response in verse 7 says, And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so when we read this section of Scripture, we see the mentioning of two promises. They would receive the promise from the Father, which they were waiting on, and they wouldn't really have to wait very long for this promise. We know that's a reference to, of course, the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. But there was mention of a second promise, promise that was prompted by the disciples' question that they asked Jesus, that is the restoration of Israel. And we know that that's something that will take place in the kingdom of God. And this was something that Jesus told them that they did not have right to know 
the times and seasons that the Father has put in his own authority. So like I mentioned, many of us would probably be a lot like those disciples. We would want to know, is it time, Jesus? Is it time for you to bring about the kingdom that you've preached about for so long, for all these years that we've followed you? Now, I don't know if you're like me, but waiting is definitely not something that I'm, I get excited about. You probably don't either. We're human beings. We want what we want. We don't like to have to wait for it, especially when it's something that we are anticipating with great excitement, such as the kingdom of God. Most likely, if I asked everyone in here, would you like the kingdom of God to come today? Everyone would probably resoundingly raise their hands and say, yes, they would. And so as I was thinking about this week, I've been working on some projects that they're, they're kind of tedious, and they take, we can't just get them done. There are several steps to these projects, but I've just, I was thinking about how much I'm anticipating the completion of these pro- projects, and how I really don't want to go through the process to get them done, I just want them to be done. And we can probably all relate to that. And so when I was thinking about that, and, and, and it's for several years now, in fact, I actually have had these thoughts, this is some old reflections. When I read this section of scripture, we have the understanding that we know that it's in that 50-day count, that there's a waiting period that these disciples were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And as I was thinking about and reflecting on this, I was thinking about us as Christians and our walk with God, and how a part of our walk is this waiting. It's the waiting not a passive waiting we know that we have things that we are to do that we are to follow after Christ in this life but nevertheless God has called us out of this world to follow his son Jesus Christ he's given us these promises and we know that he's faithful in keeping those promises he's promised that through his son he's restored us into a reconciled relationship with the father through the remission of sins through Jesus Christ But we know the ultimate promise, the realization, the fulfillment has not happened yet. We're in the process. And so, in thinking about this, and I've spoken on this individual before, we're going to go and talk about Abraham today. I was reminded by one of the biblical characters that demonstrated this process the best in my opinion. Of course, Jesus, but demonstrated this process of being called and been given promises, but not actually been given the deliverance of the promises. So let's go to Genesis, the 12th chapter. I want to look today at Abraham's call, what he had to give up, and the process of God's promises to him. We're going to Genesis, the 12th chapter, it's not necessarily breaking into context, but we do learn in Genesis chapter 11, and I'm going to go through some of this, a little bit about his, his family life and his genealogy. But we read in Genesis, the 12th chapter, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. 
I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessing, will be blessed through you. In verse 4, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So to start out, I just want to kind of cover some background information about Abraham, Abram. I'm going to refer to him from here on out as uh, Abraham, the name that we know that God will eventually give him in Genesis, the uh, 17th chapter. But we know that this is what we call the initial call of Abram, or Abraham. Now, some just basic facts about this individual. Nearly one-fourth, 25% of the book of Genesis is actually devoted to this individual known as Abraham. There are 40 Old Testament references to him throughout the Old Testament after Genesis, that, that, of course. There are 75 New Testament references to Abraham. In fact, we know that uh, the New Testament view, the presentation, is that all are heirs according to the promise through Christ. That is, those who are of Christ become heirs according to the promises given to Abraham through Jesus. And we know those promises, they're physical in the Old Testament, but they have spiritual, they will have a spiritual destiny, especially when it comes to the sons and daughters that come through Christ, that God's working through that heir of Abraham, the ultimate heir, which was Jesus. And there are 188 references to him course in what's known as the Quran. The Quran is the book of Islam. Uh, we know that there is uh, the three great monotheistic religions of Christianity, Judaism, and, Christ, uh, and Islam all point back towards Abraham as being a central figure to their faith. And we understand that uh, Jews and Christians would agree with the process of what the New Testament, or what the, uh, the, the, we would all agree in the Old Testament's version of how the events occurred in the life of Abraham. We also, when we read the New Testament, we already said how many uh, references there are of him, but when we look at Hebrews the 11, uh, 11th chapter, we know that that's the faith chapter. The majority of the faith chapter, that's just what we call it as humans, we typically, it's talking about faith of men and women in history. Most of it is devoted to this individual by the name of Abraham. So what we just read in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4, is what many, as I mentioned, refers to the call of Abraham. And it's a passage of scripture that many of us have read many different times and we're very familiar. This call of Abraham from God implied giving up three things. And that is land, family, and father's household. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through just a little bit some of the cultural background and, and historical background, when we look at <coughs> these items that's referenced in the book of Genesis and look at it from the backdrop of the ancient Near East, because I think that when we do that, it gives us a little insight to just what Abraham gave up. The first thing is land. Land was a very important element in the ancient world, and we know today it's still important. We live in America, and you buy land, and land has wealth value uh, attached to it. But in the ancient world, it was much more so, because people's livelihood, especially those who were living in an agrarian society, who had her, you know, that were herdsmen, had cattle and things like that, oftentimes society, uh, the society's political power and wealth was tied to one's land. 
This was especially the case when we read throughout history groups of people known as the aristocratic class. Several societies had aristocrats, and typically they were individuals that happened to be landowners. In ancient societies, again, wealth and power, specifically political power, was often tied to land. Many societies, you couldn't even vote. You couldn't even participate. You look at the Greeks. You couldn't even participate in the political process. They did institute a version of uh, democracy, but that was only for these individuals who were rich, aristocratic, landowning individuals. A person's very identity, oftentimes, in this society was tied to the land in which they were from or the land that they owned. And even their religion, oftentimes, was tied to the very land in which they lived and the land in which they owned. We'll get to that in just a little bit, uh, a little while later, a little bit more detail. So when we read Genesis, the 12th chapter, I want to just ask the quick question, when did Abraham get this call? Because when we read what we just read, Genesis, the 12th chapter, verse 4, it makes it seem that Abraham received this call when he was in a place called Haran. Now, if you're reading the story in Genesis, Abraham actually also has a brother named Haran. I looked at that this morning. Uh, and I wanted to bring that out. If you're reading Genesis 11, you might get confused that when the initial call happened, uh, that it says that his father, him and his father, and, his, uh, and some of his family members went to a place, and they ended up in a place called Haran. But before that, it actually says that Abraham had a brother named Haran. If I look this up, not to be confused, this, this is something I'm wanting to point out if you ever study this. The Hebrew words are a little different. So when it comes to us in the English, don't get confused if you read the story as if somehow he has a brother named Haran and they go to a place named Haran. In the English, they do, but it's not, that's, it's not the same Hebrew word. But Haran was actually a place, and I intended to maybe bring a map, it's actually a location in history that was north of what we call the land of Canaan, the, the, the promised land, the land that would eventually become Israel. What we know is that Abraham, in Genesis the chapter 12, we know that from other scriptures, this was not the initial call of Abraham. And in fact, but rather, what we learn is, is that this event of God calling Abraham away from his family, away from his kindred, his land, actually happened when he was at a location of his home birth, that is a location known as Ur of the Chaldeans. When we read Genesis, the 11th chapter, verse 31, it says, And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, again, not the Haran they went to, but it's an English, uh, little English confusion there, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So when you read, and we're not going to go to, go to both of these scriptures, we'll go to Acts in a minute, but we read another passage of scripture, for example, a little bit later in Genesis 15, we read that, you know, it's the actual covenant that Abraham will enter in with God in Genesis 15, verse 7, and we look also at Acts the 7th chapter, verses 2 through 3, they both tell us that this initial call of Abraham, the one that we just read in Genesis, the 12th chapter, 
came when he was in his native land of Ur before he migrated to Haran with his family. And this is why when you read Genesis, or Genesis 12 in the King James or the New King James, it actually says, had said, and God had said, like a past tense event, implying that this call was a, a previous event from whenever he dwelt in Haran. Uh, but he would, not, uh, he would eventually live out this calling after he leaves Haran. So what I want to do is I want us just to ask the question, what is significant, possibly, of his original homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans? We know a little bit of it about, you know, from history. Ur is a city in southern Mesopotamia, a city that the Babylonians eventually, when they would come to power in history, would take over this, this land. Acts 15, verse 7 says, And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So we know that Genesis 12, there's kind of an intermediate period there. He leaves Ur, goes to Haran with his father and, and some of his family, but eventually he ends up going to the land of Canaan. And the initial call happened before that leaving of Ur and going to Haran. So before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. So when you read history, we do actually know a little bit about this city in southern Mesopotamia. This city that was known as Ur is actually in about 186 miles southeast of modern-day Baghdad. So it's kind of in that Iraq area that we know today in modern times. Now, the 1950s, actually, it was first discovered in the 1850s, I believe, this city, this ancient city, and archaeologists actually excavated this area known as the ancient city of Ur somewhere in the 1920s to 1930s. And they discovered some things about the history of this location going back to like 2,000 years B.C. One of the things that they discovered was that this, this was a city of relatively elaborate wealth. Known as a place, of course, you might know what the word Mesopotamia means. It means the land between the two rivers. You have the Tigris and Euphrates in that part of the world, and it became Wealthy, in large part, because the land there from those rivers were very fertile. Rivers typically give you the ability to trade because you have navigational ability through water and things like that. It was a city to known, uh, it was uh, known to have skilled craftsmen, and they were known to be advanced in technology and science. And this is, uh, an example of this is the ziggurat complex that they have found at this location of Ur. If you don't know what a ziggurat is, it's kind of like an ancient Near Eastern temple complex that took a lot of scientific understanding and mathematical understanding to be able to erect. And so, when I was reading a little bit about the background of this place, Mesopotamia, the Ur of the Chaldeans, I came across this article called Genesis and Archaeology written by an individual by the name of Howard F. Voss and I thought it was interesting that he, he made this quote about Abraham leaving Ur. He says, regardless of when Abraham left Ur, he turned his back on a great metropolis, setting out by faith for a land about which he knew little or nothing and which could probably offer him little from a standpoint of material benefits. Now, we weren't there. 
The Bible doesn't give us all of the information. But I can imagine people back in this day thinking if, they, if Abraham was telling them what they were doing, and we don't know all of the story, but someday maybe we'll learn, they probably would think, you've got to be nuts. What are you doing? You're going to this random place you don't know anything about? And so he was leaving a place in his day that probably offered promise, offered wealth, offered opportunities, so to speak. It also says that Abraham was asked to leave relatives and father's house. And some translations use the phrase kinship or kindred. But we got to be clear. As we just read, it appears that Abraham, when he initially left the land of Ur, he left with some family. Genesis 11, when we read that story, which we haven't, uh, we haven't read that section. We didn't read that today. It makes it clear that his father, Terah, as well as his nephew Lot, accompanied Abraham on forsaking their native land. But, nevertheless, as we know, people in this time in history, people in these days, oftentimes would have large extended families. So even though he didn't leave his father initially when he left Ur, he was definitely leaving probably a large extended family where their land was almost probably synonymous with their name because this is typically what it was like back in these days. Everything they had was, of course, as I mentioned, would probably have been tied to this land. And in our modern world, it's maybe something that's a little bit lost on us because we live in a somewhat of a transient society. It's acceptable. We can pick up, get a job, go somewhere else, start a new life, and we're still in the same country or maybe even to a different country. So even if Abraham left with his father and his nephew, which we know, Lot, his nephew, is a big part of the story, this would be relatively a small group of people, as the text implies, leaving probably, most likely, the majority of their kinship behind. And these kinship groups played a major part of early societies. It provided them a natural source of security, uh, for protection and things like that. For example, if you were to get into trouble and maybe another people group came upon you, you would have a kinship group that you could probably rely on that would help you fight against those individuals or that other kinship group or people group that you were going up against. So leaving your homeland, your kinship, could possibly be very dangerous and very risky. You can just ask a little bit later, of course, what it was like for the Egyptians, or not the Egyptians, but the Israelites, when they were foreigners in a foreign land in the land of Egypt. And for many of us, I think this is an illustration that we can probably understand. Our families, you know, they're oftentimes, even though we live in America, for the idea of loyalty and families and longevity of marriages and things like that is somewhat diminishing. Most of us living in this part of the country probably can understand that our family is a safe haven for us. It's a sense of security. It's a sense of familiarity. It's, it's, it's something that we grow up with. And so Abraham leaving his family, his kinship, and eventually we'll see he leaves his father, this is actually something that definitely, as the scriptures tell us, would have to take a great amount of faith. <coughs> People were also oftentimes identified in the ancient world as a member of their father's household. So when you read that from your father's household, 
there might be something at play there that's just more than meets the eye because of the society in which they were living in. When we read, for example, the New Testament, not the New Testament, some of them the New Testament, the Old Testament, oftentimes we will see people introduced with the tribe, for example, that they were from. We see this with Paul, Paul of Tarsus. We see Elijah the Tishbite. We see all throughout the biblical narrative, people were oftentimes associated with their father's household. So leaving father, leaving land, father's household, leaving kinship behind, and going to a foreign land that nobody knows your name, your family name, would have been extra risky for Abraham to do. John Walton, he's an uh, ancient Near Eastern an Old Testament scholar, when I was reading this section of scripture, uh, studying Genesis, the 12th chapter, he references this idea of get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to be a reference to Abraham's inheritance. Leaving one's father's household didn't just imply leaving the father's name where someone did not know who you were, but it also would imply leaving behind and giving up perhaps the rights to any physical land, any material possessions one might inherit from their father's household. This also includes giving up rights to the family name because the family name would oftentimes, when one would die, a father, it would shift to the next eldest son. And so although we know that Abraham initially did seem to leave Ur with father, with nephew, and some small group of individuals that were a part of his family, the text tells us that eventually Abraham would leave, would eventually begin to fulfill this calling that initially happened in Ur in Genesis, the 12th chapter, when his father, Terah, was still alive. He would leave Haran and go to uh, the land of Canaan, or toward the land of Canaan. Something also that I think is uh, important to reference here, and there's some biblical allusions to this, is that it could also entail giving up one's religious identity. You see, Abraham, he came from a family that was not monotheistic. We know that in Joshua, the 24th chapter, verse 2, it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, which was Abraham's father, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river. In old times, and they served other gods. And in this same chapter, when you skip down to verse 14, we read, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. So we know that Abraham came from another society that served many other gods and people in his family. And most likely, at some point in Abraham's life, when he was early on, probably served these gods as well. Until the God of the universe, of course, called him out. In the ancient world, deities were often associated with land and people groups. I referenced that a little while ago. And oftentimes these gods, they were somewhat stationary. They were stationary, meaning that they were the god of this city or the god of this city. And we would see this, you know, in history. We see this sometimes in the Bible. People would be from a particular place, 
and they would develop what's known as a patron god or patron god. They would believe in many different gods. They were polytheists, but they would develop the idea of patron gods as like the most important specifically to their location, their geographical location. So we see this in history. For example, we can think of the Greek pantheon. You know, all the different gods of the, the Greek pantheon. We know that Poseidon, for example, is a god that was associated with the ocean, with water. We know that Athena uh, and the Parthenon was erected in Athens because the goddess of Athens was Athena. And they would erect these places of worship for them. They would be gods of different forces of nature, gods of different concepts, like Athena was not necessarily a, a, a goddess of nature, but the goddess of wisdom uh, and things like that. And so walking away from this, would include not just walking away from family, land, identification, but also walking away from perhaps the religious identification, the faith in which maybe Abraham grew up with, to follow after the true God of the universe to a new land, a land that he did not know much about. And so I want to ask this question, could maybe we relate to this? We might not have had idols. We might not have had land that we walked away from. But there might have been some things that we held on to. And becoming a part of this faith and receiving these promises required us to possibly walk away from some of those things that we were familiar with. The scripture tells us that he would receive a new land. He's from the land of Ur, comes with his father to this place called Haran that's north of Canaan and eventually begins to fulfill, <coughs> the call, fulfill the call of God and coming into the land of Canaan. And it said that God told him that he would receive a new land. But we know that wasn't something that happened immediately. Acts the seventh chapter, verse 4, speaking of Abraham leaving Ur, it says, God removed from him removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So you've got to remember that a part of this story is that he gives Abraham this promise of land and this promise of land to descendants while his wife was barren and while he was at the ripe old age of 75. Now what's interesting, when we read Genesis, you read the early chapters, right? And you read all of these individuals that are living to like 900 and something years of age. Methuselah, 969 years of age. When we get to this part of scripture, though, something changes. All of a sudden, people are starting to live a lot less. The lifespans are decreasing. In fact, what we see is, is that Abraham is 75 years of age whenever he enters into this land. He has a barren wife, and you can tell that even he himself is probably a little skeptical of the promise that God gave him. Was he did he have faith? 
Perhaps, yes, he did. The Bible's clear that Abraham, through his faith, he was justified. But what we know is, is that Abraham somehow misunderstood how God would do this. And we can even think that, you know, when we think of this story, we know that he was probably thinking to himself, okay, I'm 75 years old, my wife's barren, God says I'm going to have the descendants as the, star of, you know, as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the sea. And what does he do? He takes it upon himself to try to help God fulfill this promise. Of course, with using his wife's servant, Hagar, to be able to fulfill this promise of having an heir. So at the age of 75 years old, this would have taken a lot of faith. It would probably have been hard for someone to believe that he could actually bear a child and actually for God to come through with these promises through an actual physical heir between him and his wife, Sarah. I like this quote from an individual by the name of Bob Deffenbaugh. He's a Christian writer and commentator that oftentimes I'll read. And, uh, he, he says that Abraham would have been on Social Security for 10 years in our time. Min the midlife crisis would have been over. Instead of thinking about new land, most of us would have been thinking in terms of a rocking chair and a rest home. So it just kind of gives you some perspective. Although 75 years of age might not seem like it was that old in the context of Scripture with all of these individuals living for so many years, we see in this part of the history of God's involvement in humans in this world, 75 years old was actually pretty old because the lifespans were dramatically decreasing. And so he's going to give him new land, he's going to give him descendants, and he's going to bless him. He's going to bless him and bless those who bless him. And so there's another possible interesting thing that could be. He leaves father, right? When we read the ancient Near East, and we actually see examples of this in our Bible, we can think of, you know, of course, you know, Isaac, and we can think of Jacob and, 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 and them blessing the 12, you know, Jacob blessing the different 12 tribes. We see that the father's blessing was a big part of the culture in which the ancient world lived in, especially the biblical culture. And oftentimes these blessings, they wouldn't just be like blessings of God hoping for security and prosperity, but a lot of times they would be prophesying over them, prophesying different things to happen to God, to their son, to their children. But God is saying he's blessing Abraham himself that he is actually leaving Father, and he is going to take the blessing from God, perhaps. He's going to exchange the blessing that he received from his Father, would receive, and actually have God himself bless him. And we know that all of these things would come to pass. And Abraham, even though he would not uh, inherit this land, and like the way that we would think about, the way that his ancestors, that his not ancestors, but his descendants would. We know that Abraham was blessed physically in this land. He was able to, through many different complex stories that we read that are given to us, he was able to be blessed physically in this land as well as his descendants becoming what God intended them to become. And ultimately we know that the ultimate blessing from Abraham came from that one specified true descendant that would eventually come in the form of Jesus Christ. And that's how that blessing would be blessed 
bless the entire world. There's physical parts to Abraham's blessing, but we know ultimately, spiritually, the ultimate blessing of Abraham was that Jesus Christ would come from him and be the Savior of the world. So what do I want to emphasize from this early call of Abraham? The first thing is kind of what we've already went over. Abraham and what he had to give up to follow after God's call. When we read that faith chapter that I referenced a little while ago in Hebrews the 11th chapter, verse 8 through 10, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which, was, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He didn't know where he was going per se. You know, we think about this and uh, we think about this idea of like we want to move and go somewhere. Even if we have no knowledge of where we're going, we can go online, we can get the number, a website for a chamber of commerce, and, you know, whatever city that we, you know, want to go to. We can learn about that city before we go there. Abraham, he didn't have that ability. There wasn't a chamber of commerce that says, hey, visit Canaan. These are all the different things that we have, a bunch of dusty, dry land. Of course, we know it was a land eventually that would be blessed by God, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we know to this very day, it's interesting that you think about that land. There's probably no other land in the history of mankind that's been more fought after than this land. The land that we know become the land of promise, the, the original land of Canaan. And it goes back to this story right here of God promising Abraham this land and to his descendants and through this the entire world being blessed. There's no brochures advertising visit Canaan. It implied leaving the life of familiarity. We humans, were sometimes, anyone, raise your hand, or you don't have to in your mind, if you don't like change. I'll raise my hand. I have a hard time with change. I struggle with it. You know, we're human beings. We get into this mode. We like routine. We like familiarity. We like comfort. You know, it makes us feel comfortable. It makes us feel secure. It makes us feel like we know what's going on. I can just imagine what it would be like for God to call one of us in the same manner. It would probably be very, very difficult. But when we ask about what Abraham had to give up, and the historical factors that we can understand just through studying this story and knowing a little bit about the history, let's ask that same question about our own calling. And I alluded to this just a few minutes ago. The Bible tells us that we are a part of this plan that was started with Abraham. We have more understanding. We live in an age in history where we've seen more events take place. We've seen the fulfillment of parts of this prophecy. We've seen the fulfillment of the ultimate seed that came from Abraham, Jesus Christ. Even though we don't have a complete understanding of the journey that we are on, but we know the land in which we are walking towards the kingdom of God. Galatians, the third chapter, verse 26 through 29, 
breaking in the context, it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Through Jesus Christ. So like Abraham, we see that we have a part in this inheritance. And we have been given, as I mentioned, the opportunity to understand it just a little bit more, of course, than other individuals in history because of the vantage point that we get to look at it through in our historical setting with understanding the Messiah that has come and what God has done through him and what God has done in paving the way for what started long ago ultimately coming to pass through Jesus Christ where now it's not just about physical Israel. It's not just about the physical descendants of Israel, but there is a means in which all the world can come to God through that one individual, Jesus Christ. So just thinking back to our initial calling from God, all of us had different circumstances, and of course, like I mentioned, we, we probably didn't have to leave our land, we probably didn't have to you know, necessarily give up our family, we probably didn't have to you know, change our uh, you know, change our lifestyle, of course, but not change as much as what Abraham was called to do. But I think it's sometimes easy, we've been given these promises, it's easy maybe to take them for granted. It's easy maybe sometimes uh, to, to not think about just how important these promises are and how much of a reality they are, and sometimes even become lulled to sleep because we're in this waiting period. Some of us had aspects of life that maybe were harder to give up than others. You know, Abraham, he was asked to give up the land, family, father's household, all of that stuff. But we had to give up things as well. And we talked about this just a few weeks ago during the Days of Unleavened Bread, the things that we put out of our lives. Things we put out of our lives that sometimes might make us out of step with the world. Maybe, some, maybe we lost a job because of the faith that we had and the, 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 the lifestyle that this faith brings with it. Maybe not. Maybe family, friends, all of these things could have been situations that we didn't have to give up, but because maintaining them might have made it inconsistent with the Christian lifestyle. We all have different situations that we're in. What I do know is this. We had to give up our former selves, as the scriptures tell us. We had to die with Christ. That old man, that self, died with Jesus Christ. And some of those things might have been fun, physically, from a world perspective, from a carnal perspective. Some of those things might have been very difficult, because it might have not just been something that, that uh, we were called to give up... You know, and we were able to give it up because we saw the dangers. We saw how it was against God. Maybe there was addictions involved. Maybe there were things that we struggled with and we continue to struggle with. That it's a daily battle that we have to die. That we have to die daily with Christ. That we have to deny that old self daily. That still tries to bring itself up. 
The second thing I want to bring out is this idea that I mentioned at the very beginning, the process. The process of the journey. As Hebrews 11, breaking into that same verse that we just read, for he, speaking of Abraham, waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And at the very beginning of this message, I, entered, I opened up with Acts 1, and I just started talking about how it got me thinking about this waiting period that we're in. This period I like to call the process. You know, you, you know we heard uh, Mr. Hope speak just before this and talking about, you know, sell the sizzle, not the steak. And one of the things he referenced was is all the things, you know, the 55 years of being a part of this faith, that's a long time. And I probably know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask anyways. Do you think that process, those 55 years, have a purpose in your Christian walk? Absolutely. There's a purpose to the process. When we read the scriptures, you know, we read Abraham. We read about the promises. But let's think about the process. Does God automatically give Abraham the promise? Of course not. We read that from scriptures. And we can see it from history when we read the historical part of it. But why? Why not just when we're, when we repent, when we decide that we're going to follow Christ as our Savior and accept Him and proclaim Him as the Savior and Messiah of the world, we're baptized, why aren't we just whisked away to the kingdom of God? Have ever thought about that? Because I don't think I can answer that fully. I don't want to speak for God. I think that there's no one who can accurately 100% answer that question other than God himself but I think that there's some things that are hinted at in scripture and one of them is is that God very very rarely as we know from the biblical narrative operates like that we see from almost the beginning to the end this idea of the process of waiting from the time the promise is given to the time it's fulfilled we see this, of course, with what we just looked at with Abraham's life. We see it with King David. King David was anointed as king of Israel and still waited to be king for Saul's kingship to be completed. We see this process carried over in the New Testament. You know, there's this interesting passage in the Gospel of Luke when we read the story about Jesus being, being born. And there's this individual... Uh, by the name of Simeon, that's present at Jesus' birth. And it's in chapter 2 and verse 25 of Luke's gospel, and it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. This individual would go on and proclaim Jesus the Savior, that he, his eyes have been able to see the Savior of the world. But I think that it's, there's no doubt that this individual was representative of a, what a lot of these individual Jews living in Jesus' day in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in Galilee, all felt that waiting that long waiting for God's promise to take place. Unfortunately, we know the story happens and a large portion 
did not accept Jesus. I want to go just a couple scriptures in closing. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, the very, very, very end, speaking of men and women of faith and history, we read this in the closing verses of Hebrews 11. We read in verse 39, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, these men and women who have been given promises, who have, had done mighty works through God in history, men and women of faith, it says, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. There's something about this process that we're in, this waiting period. There's benefit in living this life. There is a point to it. Of course, ultimately, the most important thing is our acceptance of Christ and our entering into that covenant relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ and that remission of sins. But this process between when we accept that and when we ultimately inherit the kingdom of God, there is a purpose for it. And we see it all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament. The letters of Paul talking about this idea of running a race. Running a race in a steadfast manner. There's something about this process, this waiting. I want to go to 2 Peter verse, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 in conclusion. Just something I kind of added on because Peter talks a little bit about this idea of where are the promises? Why hasn't God done what, he, what Jesus said he was going to do? It says, Beloved, in verse 1, a second Peter 3, it says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they will willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which, which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire unto the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 8. But beloved. If you're not. Do not forget this one thing. That the Lord. That with the Lord one day. Is, a, is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack. Concerning his promise. As some count slackness. But is long suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish but all should come to repentance. So there's a reason, of course, that God is bringing many sons and daughters to glory, of course. Many people to glory through repentance, to covenant relationship with Him. But there's also the process in which He's doing it, as we see from the New Testament, is us and our involvement. Jesus said 
to his disciples, come with me, I want to make you fishers of men. And he's still doing that today. We're still personally on this journey, this process to grow in faith, to have hardships, unfortunately, just like Abraham did. And despite those, still continue our faith. But ultimately, that is also a part of the witness to other people and seeing in spite of those things that we go through. The growth that comes from it and the faith that remains and continues. In closing, I would like for us to consider our journey. And while we're in this period, this 50-day period, I would like us to consider our journey to the 50th day to some extent as a metaphor for our Christian walk, this walk that we're on. As we considered Abraham's life today and Lord, the beginning of his calling, what he gave up to follow God, how he migrated through an unknown land as a foreigner in that land to a land that we know later would become known as the promised land. As the scripture reads, reading it one more time, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to place, to go out of the place in which he would receive as an inheritance. We know, it says, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And we too, in like manner, we're wandering this earth. We're not wandering all over, but we're on this earth, and we know that this land, someday, this earth, will become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It will ultimately be the true kingdom of God. We know that. But just like Abraham followed God to a new land, so are we as we wander around this earth and we go on their journey that God is taking us on and as we wait for the ultimate promise.